before, would you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have given us your word. We thank you that you speak to us in every part of it. And we thank you that we can now take this time to look into it. We pray that you would use it in a mighty way. Speak to us by the power of your spirit, for your purposes, and for your glory. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, today we conclude our sermon series on the book of 2 Timothy. This text today really could have been included in last week's sermon, and uh, a lot of times, really, frankly, almost all commentators and preachers as they deal with this take verses 9 to 22 and just deal with it all as one whole passage. But I split it up into two passages for a number of reasons. The first was imminently practical. It's because next week is the first Sunday of Advent, and so it had to be done by then with this series. And when I started out, I built in an extra week, just in case something were to come up, we'd be able to still get everything done with this text of 2 Timothy before Advent started. Turned out we didn't need the extra week, and so I had a week to play with. Second reason. There is a little bit of a difference in the nature of what he's saying this week as opposed to last week. You'll note that both passages deal with very personal sayings, but you might also notice from what we read last week and what we read here today, or if you have your Bible open in front of you, you might see a different heading over each of these sections, the one being personal instructions, the other being personal greetings. It's a small distinction, but a distinction nonetheless. And then there was last week's ending point. Do you recall where at the end of verse 18 we were? Verse 18 Paul wrote, the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into the heavenly kingdom, a triumphant expression of his confidence in the power and goodness and protection of the Lord and what ensued from there but a, a doxological exclamation, to him be the glory forever and ever, amen. Well, that that sounds like a stopping point, right? It's a place where we should stop and pause and consider what he's saying. And so it made sense to end last week at that point. And then finally, by taking this short passage today, just these verses 19 to 22, which deal largely with these personal greetings, it gives us the opportunity to kind of look back over the whole of our study of 2 Timothy as, as we look at this passage. And I think we can draw out some of the key themes that we've seen in the book so far. And so that's really, I think, the big idea of this sermon that, that we see in these last verses a number of reminders of the key themes that have been woven throughout the book of 2 Timothy. The importance of the covenantal community. The need we have to be grounded in the gospel the fact that we will indeed face suffering, a gentle urgency to the message that's being proclaimed, and then finally the fact that it is all 
of grace. You know, when I moved here, I was really surprised. I was surprised by the question that, that was often posed to me. I told people I had come from St. Louis, Missouri, and they would say, you're from Missouri? Well, why don't you talk like you're from the South? And I was surprised by that question. You see, because I had lived some 30-plus years in Missouri, and never once had I considered Missouri to be part of the South. Instead, I had considered it to be the Midwest. What really surprised me on top of that was that everybody here up in Michigan thought Michigan was actually in the Midwest. And, and I had always thought that Michigan, all of Michigan, was up north, right? You see, we had a, a different understanding of what the Midwest was. For me, the Midwest was Missouri and Kansas and Nebraska, you know, flyover country, so-called by people because, because that's the territory that they really didn't know much about or ever go to, but they would fly over it on the way to somewhere else, right? If you were in New York and going to Los Angeles, you would fly over that part of the country. If you're in Detroit and going to Dallas, you'd fly over it, right? No matter where you were going to or from, if you crossed the country, that was the, the part of the country that you would fly over. As I was thinking about this passage today, it occurred to me that, that these passages of personal greetings that Paul often has at the end of his letters are kind of the flyover country of the Bible, aren't they? Right? We, we, we don't plan on like going there and spending time there. It's just kind of what we have to go over to get to the next place, right? And, and we, we don't really meditate and think about and consider what the Lord would really teach us in these passages. We just quickly move past them to the next place we're going. But, but as we said last week, we need to remember that even in these passages, there is something vitally important for us to learn. For the Lord has given us all of Scripture, as we learned earlier in 2 Timothy, breathed out by God that it might be profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. Do you want to be complete? Do you want to be spiritually mature? Do you want to be equipped for every good work that the Lord has prepared that you might walk in it? If so, then we need to look at passages such as this one today. And we can learn things from it. And perhaps one of the things that the Lord is doing in this passage of seemingly random and sometimes hard to pronounce names is reminding us of the importance of the covenantal community, right? Paul's talking about all these people that, that he has been in community with, all these people who are part of the church, all these people who have played different roles, who have worked alongside him, who have, who have been there with him, who have shared in experiences with him. And, and it reminds us of the importance of fellowship that we experience with one another, right? The Christian life is not meant to be lived as an individual effort, right? It's something that we are to do together. 
We live this life together and we live to the glory of God together, right? It's one of the very first things we're taught in the Bible, way back in Genesis 2, right? It is not good that man should be alone. Now, we often take that and apply that to marriages. Indeed, God created Eve at that point, and that's a fine application of that but i think even more basically more foundationally god was talking about community he's talking about fellowship it's not good for us to simply be alone we should be with other people that we might encourage one another's that we might might serve one another's that we might might instruct one another that we might correct one another at times and that we might help one another as we grow I've been studying the book of Proverbs with a group of pastors and elders, um, and, and as we've gone through it, we've, we've come to Proverbs 18, and it's been, it's been a, a really neat study, but Proverbs 18 begins with this verse. It says, whoever isolates himself seeks his own desire. He breaks out against all sound judgment. It really is common sense, isn't it? That if we isolate ourselves, if we don't take any input from anyone else, that this is, this is just breaking away from all sound judgment. It's the kind of wisdom we find throughout the book of Proverbs, this common sense that says that, that we should not isolate ourselves, for it, it leaves us lonely on the one hand, which, which is indeed a, a bad thing, but it's not just an emotional thing it's talking about. It's not just talking about a loneliness here. It's talking beyond that about the fact that it leaves us susceptible to following the wrong ways, to going in the wrong directions, to doing the wrong things. Because, because what is it that Jeremiah the prophet tells us but that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick, right? So, so if we follow the ways of the world, if we listen to the advice that the world would have for us and say, don't pay attention to anyone else, just follow your heart. Well, we are following a heart that is deceitfully wicked and terribly sick. That doesn't make any sense. That common sense tells us that we must not simply follow our hearts. We should have the wise advice and guidance and help of other people as well. People who are more mature than us. People that we walk hand in hand and arm in arm with through the Christian life together. And sometimes, sometimes they will correct us. Sometimes they will say, no, you're doing the wrong thing. That's not very smart. And we don't like that because none of us likes to be corrected. But the book of Proverbs tells us also in chapter 27, the faithful are the wounds of a friend. And profuse are the kisses of an enemy. Right? So there are times that we need to be correcting others. We need to be need to be telling them that they're headed in the wrong way. Those, those can be hard conversations at times. And, and we can't have an effective conversation like that if we don't have relationship with one another, right? If somebody that you don't really know, somebody that you don't really trust, someone that you don't really have a relationship comes up to you and says, you're wrong, you need to stop doing that. You're likely to say, whatever. You don't know me, I don't know you, I don't trust you. But on the other hand, if it's someone who knows you, someone that you've lived closely with, someone with whom you have fellowship, someone whose love you are confident of, you know that they are about your best, 
that that is what they want for you. And they bring this word of correction to you. Well, you'll hear that a little differently, won't you? That's the need for fellowship. We need to be having this fellowship with one another so that we can speak into one another's lives that we might be able to give counsel. Again, in the book of Proverbs, oil and perfume make the heart glad and the sweetness of a friend comes from his earnest counsel. Right? They, we get this counsel that, that, that might correct us when we're going the wrong ways or or. We get the the love of a friend who comes alongside us in times of hardship. When we have trials, when we have sadness, when we have grief, when we have have a a hard day. Proverbs 18, 24, a man of many companions may come to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. Right? So, So we need to look for those people in our lives that might be closer than a brother closer than a sister those people who who are close but not just look for those people we need to look to be those people we need to look to be those people in the lives of others so so seek to serve in these ways of course Christ Jesus is the greatest example of this right uh, he, he is the one who who has said that greater love have no one than him who lays down his life for his friends and this is exactly what Jesus did Right? Because he understood that other people aren't there just to use for our benefit, but rather they are there to serve for their benefit. That we might serve them and in serving them, so serve God. This is what we're called to do in fellowship, and, and this is the kind of fellowship that, that Paul wants to engender and encourage amongst Timothy and those who are receiving this letter at the church in Ephesus where he's sending it, he says to them, greet Prisca and Aquila. He's demonstrating his own love for them, for these two people, Prisca and Aquila. He gives an example of someone who who understood and practiced fellowship in in the persons of Prisca and Aquila. Who who are they? Well, 1 Corinthians 16 tells us that the, the churches of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Prisca, together with the church in their house, said you hearty greetings in the Lord. So, so we know that, that they are those who, who were uh, hosting a house church. They, they had opened up their house. They were those who were, were hospitable to others. So we see a picture of their, their fellowship experienced and expressed in that way. Uh, we, we see the fact that, that in Romans 16, where he says, greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, that they were workers with Paul. And he goes on to say, they risked their necks for my life. We see this kind of love, this self-sacrificial love that they expressed on behalf of Paul, that they might be those who, who were expressing fellowship with one another and experiencing it as well. In Acts 18, which is written by Luke, of course, we see mention of Aquila and Priscilla. And that's the same person. It's much the same as, uh, you know, you might call me Peter. That's my legal name. Or you might just call me Pete, right? Or, or if there's a woman, you, you know, you could call, call her, uh, you could call her Susan, or you could call her Sue, or Susie, right? There's different names, right, that, that, that we have that are kind of nicknames or, or, or diminutive names that we have, and that's how 
Prisca and, and Priscilla are. So it's the same person. And we see in Acts 18 that, that after Paul left Athens and went to Corinth, he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife, Priscilla. Because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. We see again a picture of their hospitality there, their generosity, their opening of their home to him, that they might, might have him there, that they might be about the well-being of the church, that they might serve in this way. And later on in Acts 18, we see that a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus, and he was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures, instructed in the way of the Lord, fervent in the spirit. He had everything going on, right? If you wanted to have a, 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 a person teach and preach and proclaim the truth of the gospel, what a great skill set he had. And it says, indeed, he spoke and taught things accurately concerning Jesus. But then it says this. It says he, he taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. You see, the idea was that, that he knew about this baptism of repentance that John had spoken of, but, but he didn't know about being baptized into the name of the triune God, being baptized in the name of God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So, so it's saying that he, he knew a lot and he spoke accurately about the things that he was teaching, but there were some things he didn't know still. What happened? Well, we see that he began to speak boldly in the synagogues, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. It's interesting. They didn't stand up in the pews and say, be quiet, you don't know it all. Right? They didn't make a big scene of it in front of everybody. They didn't try to embarrass him or anything like that. Right? But they gently graciously, kindly took him aside, talked with him, and taught him the things that he did not know. Not from a point of, we know more than you, but rather, you are a gifted individual, and we would love for you to be teaching these things, but we, we have things that you don't know, and we want to share them with you, that you might teach them more deeply, more truly. This is the picture of the kind of fellowship that we need to have with one another. It needs to be grounded in the gospel, of course, right? Because, because it's not just a matter of teaching things that are true. They all need to be grounded in the gospel, right? We can teach the Ten Commandments. We can teach all kinds of rules about what you should do. But if it's nothing but a set of rules, do this, do this, do this, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, and it's abstracted from the gospel, then we are completely lost, right? But, but we need to understand the, the whole of the gospel and put all of these things in the context of the gospel. And that's what they were pointing to with what they were teaching him. Bring it into the gospel. It's not just a matter of, of, of being sorry for our sins and turning away from our sins. We must be sorry for our sins. We must turn away from our sins. But we must turn to Christ. We must turn to Christ Jesus, for there is no other name under heaven given by which we must be saved. 
right? It is only Christ Jesus who died for our sins. It is only Christ Jesus who can bring forgiveness to us. It is only Christ Jesus who can bring us reconciliation. And so the whole of the scriptures must be seen through that lens and in that light. We see another thing, another key theme bringing up there in uh, verses 19 and 20, that reminder that we will indeed suffer. Remember how often Paul has spoken about this throughout 2 Timothy. Suffering has been a kind of a constant drumbeat throughout this letter. You can understand why he's about to die himself, right? These aren't just empty platitudes, empty words that he's saying. He's, He's laid his own life on the line, and it will cost him his own life, and he knows that that day is coming quickly. But he is willing to do that because Christ Jesus is worth it. Right? He, he could have come and he could just tell lies and, and, and said, you know, if you follow Jesus, you'll avoid suffering. Maybe kind of like a, a, a slick salesman, right, who, who, who calls you up on the phone and has something that sounds way too good to be true. And if you're like me, your parents taught you when you were very young. If it sounds too good to be true, it probably is. Right? He's not saying there will be no hardship. He's not saying there will be no trouble. He's very clear that there will be. He said it time and time again throughout this book. And we see a picture of that here in this passage, right? He, he sends greetings as well to the household of Onesiphorus. Right? You'll, you'll recall back in chapter 1, right, where he's brought up Onesiphorus. May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. And now he's again sending greetings to the household of Onesiphorus. Most commentators believe that what has happened is that Onesiphorus has died, that he's no longer there, right? He doesn't send greetings to Onesiphorus, but rather to the household of Onesiphorus, right? The idea here is that Onesiphorus has come to serve Paul, to take care of Paul, to help out Paul, to refresh him in his chains that he has never gotten back whether it was there in Rome or somewhere along the way, he's likely died. And so Paul is sending these greetings that are indeed a a word of comfort to his family. A word of love, but at the same time a word of caution to the rest of us. Count the cost. Count the cost. If you want to follow Jesus, we don't come with empty platitudes. We don't come saying... Follow him and everything's good. It's all smiles and laughs. There is hardship. Jesus himself said that if you would follow him, you must take up your cross. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple, he says in Luke 14. He goes on to say, therefore any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. See, he says you have to take all that you have and realize that it is not yours, it is the Lord's. And if you want to follow him, you you need to be willing to lose it all. You need to be willing to lose everything, including your life. But the promise that goes along with that is he is worth it. He is worth it. Because his love and his his grace and his mercy are, are infinite and eternal. He is worth it, and Paul has shown that himself. Verse 20, Erastus remained at Corinth, and I left Trophimus, who was ill, at Miletus. Remember, this all harkens back to the fact that Paul 
is alone, right? Only Luke was with him. He is alone in prison. He doesn't have lots of friends coming to visit him. He is alone there. The people that would have visited him are gone, right? Erastus is off in Corinth on ministry, presumably. He left Trophimus, who was ill at Miletus. And, and we read about Trophimus in Acts 20 and 21, if you want to look into him. We don't have time today. But, but here we see that he was ill and had to be left behind. It kind of lays a death knell to the idea of the, the prosperity gospel, the health and wealth gospel, right? That, that if you just have enough faith, then everything's going to be good and you'll all be healthy and so forth and so on. But, but Paul could not bring about healing for Trophimus. He had to leave him behind. And so he says to Timothy, out of his loneliness, do your best to come before winter. We see there a reminder of that, that gentle urgency with which Paul speaks throughout this letter. Right? Paul, Paul was, was as spiritual as you can get, and yet he, he did care about this life. Right? It was certainly less important to him than his eternal life. It was certainly something that he, he held with an empty, or with an open hand, leaving it to the Lord, right? Renouncing it in, in a sense, as the Lord himself said. Right? After all, it was Paul who said to live as Christ and to die as gain. But even though Christ was more important to him than his very life, he did care about this life, and he longed for Timothy to come and visit him, to be with him, to share in fellowship with him, to be together, to get that encouragement. Remember back in verse uh, 4 of chapter 1, as I remember your tears, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. And now he says in verse 21 of chapter 4, do your best to come before winter. There are two things that almost all commentators say about this verse. One of them is that the shipping season in the Mediterranean was such that, that it ran from mid-March until mid-November, and, and you couldn't really traverse those waters during the rest of the time. And so he's saying, come and get here before winter, because, because if you don't get here by then, then it's going to be much longer until you can get here. It's, it's a very practical understanding of what's going on, but what Paul doesn't say, and this is the second thing the commentators say, but certainly new to be true, and certainly undergirds this is this. If you don't come right away, Timothy, <laughs> if you don't come right away, I won't see you, because I'm going to die. Time is short. He, he didn't, though, lay that burden upon Timothy. He didn't come out and say, Timothy, you've got to get here before I die, otherwise, otherwise you will have wronged me. Right? He doesn't lay that burden upon him. He's more gentle than that, more gracious than that, more kind than that, in much the same way as our Lord Jesus is gracious to us. Right? I think in a different way, it's a different kind of burden for sure, but, but it's similar in that the, the Pharisees, you'll remember Jesus said, laid hard burdens on the people, burdens that they had to follow a certain set of rules that was above and beyond what God 
demanded of them even in the, that they could somehow earn their salvation and this great weight of burden was upon them because all knew themselves to be sinners and and no matter what we do if we're trying to earn our salvation we will stumble along the way and have we failed and can we do enough and we don't know and this great burden is heavy upon us but Christ Jesus instead says to us take my yoke upon you be bound to me right for my yoke is easy and my burden is light and so so jesus tells us in gentleness that he will carry the burden for us that he has taken it upon himself but there is an urgency to that as well because because he says be bound to me yes let me carry the weight for you let me take the punishment upon myself for you but you need to do that you need to make that decision you need to make that realization that this is who jesus is that he is the savior who has come he is the messiah who was long awaited he is the king and he is the lamb of god who takes away the sin of the world we must come to this realization we must we must turn our back on our sin and we must turn to christ jesus and trust in him alone and so jesus calls on us to do the same one final thing here with this verse 21 Eubulus sends greetings to you as do Pudens and Linus and Claudia and all the brothers most of these people we don't know much about the one that we do is Linus Irenaeus the ancient church father tells us that Linus was the bishop of Rome and Irenaeus if you're not aware was a disciple of Polycarp and Polycarp was the disciple of John and you know John he was the disciple of Jesus and I remember in my church history class in seminary how that really struck me at the first instant I heard that, wow, we have these writings from Irenaeus, who was a disciple of Polycarp, who was a disciple of John, who was a disciple of Jesus. That's amazing. And then all of a sudden it occurred to me, wait a second, Pete, we also have the writings of John, right? Because, because he was with Jesus, right? Sometimes we, we categorize these people in the Bible in a different category, right? They're, they're, they're Bible people, right? You know, we've got real people over here, and then there's the Bible people over here. No, those were real people. And these are real people that Paul is talking about here today. We need to remember that this is all real. Sometimes with history we do that. We, we don't think of them as being real. Like when we went to Washington, D.C. a few years back, being in the Lincoln Memorial and, and seeing the Gettysburg Address engraved upon the inside of it and and there's a phrase that caught my attention that day in a way it had never caught my attention before abraham lincoln on that field in gettysburg as they memorialized those who had died in the battle there said the world will little note nor long remember what we say here and it's so ironic isn't it because i'm reading this 150 plus years later engraved in stone right the world's going to forget this. <laughs> they won't remember what we said. Well, I, no, actually we do, Abe. <laughs> but the truth is, usually, that is true. We forget things. We move past it, right? And the reality is for all of us, 150 years from now, we will be forgotten, right? I, I do genealogical studies, and I know a little bit about my great-great-grandparents, but it's mostly just names and numbers, and, and that's it. Largely, we will be forgotten to history, each and every one of us. But here's the good news. 
the Lord will not forget you. The Lord will not forget you. And so Paul says to Timothy, the Lord be with your spirit. It's a singular you here. Your is a singular. He's saying, Timothy, may the Lord be with your spirit. But then his very next phrase is grace be with you. And that you is plural. Grace be with you all. Because he calls us as an individual, but he also calls us to a larger body, to the church. And we all need the grace of God, both individually and corporately. As Ligon Duncan says, that everything we can do falls short of the goals that we want to accomplish. We need grace. And as we saw last week, the Lord will stand by us. He will strengthen us. Not so that we can do whatever we want, but so that we can do whatever he wants. And he wants to do the most mighty work imaginable. He wants to bring life out of death. Just like we saw in the Unison Scripture reading a few minutes ago. Right? It wasn't that Ezekiel was such a great prophet that he was able to speak life into these dry bones. No, it was the power of God's Spirit working through him. And so it is with us. By God's grace, we are able to see the power of God at work. I don't think we often think of grace in that way. We think of grace as being kind and gentle and sweet. And indeed it is. But God's grace is powerful. It is mighty, more powerful than anything we can do. And so in closing, I give you this quote from Kent Hughes. He said, every one of Paul's benedictions contains the word grace. So Paul's terminal word and wish was that God's unmerited favor, forgiveness, and enabling power would be showered upon his children. May we go forth from this place today in that power, the power of God's grace. Amen. Would you pray with me once more? Our Lord, thank you that you have indeed blessed us with your grace. Thank you that it is not up to us It's not up to our power. It's not up to our abilities to accomplish your purposes, but rather you call us to a purpose and then you give us power to accomplish it. Power through Christ Jesus and through your spirit. Power by your grace. Be with us now as we leave from this place today and go with us always. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're able, rise now and sing together hymn 562, Lord, dismiss us with your blessing.